Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Driving lane races up the Manufique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup one. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Allsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel, fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. McCarty Debra's won it. American Trevian. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the clouds on the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line, locked together, dead eight. A dead eat in the Melbourne Cup, Seymour and Lightfingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. Welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup and it's great to have your pleasure again as we look back at uh, some of the wonderful moments of this fabulous race and the stories that evolve each and every year. And my guests uh, this morning uh, are two men that have got a very rich sort of association with the Melbourne Cup, one as a commentator and one as the keeper of the Melbourne Cup, as Jim and Joe McGrath. Joe McGrath, g'day. Hi Brian, how are you going? I'm well thanks Joe, good to have you here and this is brother Jim. Yes. Hey, Brian. How are you? Yeah, the race caller, from, uh, from, formerly from Australia, via Hong Kong, across to uh, the UK. Uh, a man who went to the top of his craft over there in a pretty tough market, calling all the, all the wonderful races through Europe, and 20 Melbourne Cups. How did you come to do that for the BBC? Well, you... I reckon I was very lucky, Brian, because I managed to talk them into it uh, after <laughs> Vintage Crop won the, uh, the 93 Cup. Um, it really created a lot of uh, a media storm over there. Everyone was fascinated by it. And, and I think Vintage Crop did more to sell the Melbourne Cup in Europe than any other anybody else. I mean, they sent over many people you know, for many years, but he did more to, uh, single-handedly than anybody. So I, I bowled into uh, BBC uh, Radio, uh, Radio 5. I didn't do much work for them. I worked for the TV station. Uh, but I just said, look, I reckon this would go really well. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about it. And uh, also, it just happens to be at 4 a.m. Uh, UK time, which is in the middle of the night. I know you've got a, a dawn till dusk or dusk till dawn uh, show. Uh, this would fit in well. Very fortunately, there was a guy called Rod Sharp, who was an excellent broadcaster, probably still is, and uh, he said, uh, he didn't know anything about racing. He said, oh, this is fantastic. I'd love to do that. I think he could see that he was going to fill a slot of about half an hour so <laughs> it was, uh, overnight. So uh, he went for it and uh, ended up doing 20 years consecutively, which was fantastic. Well, it was perfect for you because it meant that you came home. Exactly. Back to Melbourne I mean, where you were born. Was a ticket, it was a ticket back every year. So, mm. so it, was, uh, uh, it, was, it was a good idea. Let's go back to uh, your association, yours, and, and of course, Joe. Uh, your dad, for people who don't know, your dad was a very prominent uh, bookmaker here in the 60s and 70s, Brian McGrath. I remember Brian well. And he, he was a breeder of thoroughbreds, and he had a fair bit of success. So as boys growing up, and I know, how many in the team, how many in the family? Well, it's seven, Brian, uh, five boys, two girls, uh, and uh, Jim's the oldest, uh, and I'm the youngest, 13 years between uh, the two of us. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, fairly busy around the household and... Uh, Lots race- of racing talk. Yeah. yeah Lots was. of racing talk at the table. I don't think there was anything else. Footy and racing, there was all the time. Yeah, so yeah. How, how soon were you going to the races? How soon were you... If Dad was working as a bookie... Um, could you still go? Could you go with Mark? Well, I, I went, the about? first time I went was when I was four. I went, I went to Pakenham. I sat, yeah. uh, st- uh, stood behind Dad's uh, stand and then went up and watched the races with him, uh, each race, and just sat there, just you know, just sit there and look at the race book. So that's what I did. And uh, then after a couple of years, I graduated going off by myself and uh, was probably, a, I'd say probably less than a couple of years, probably a a bit more adventurous than that, you know. Probably went off in a year, went around, had a look at them in the mounting yard, things like that. And uh, very soon, I started being fascinated by these guys looking through binoculars and calling the races. And I used to, you know, I mean, you, you, I know you at many meetings, at many of those country meetings, you'd see little kids yeah. sort of looking yeah. up and what are they doing? And 
the, the favourite place was Caulfield in the old stand because you could go behind the, the boxes and you can actually see what they were doing. Right? Mm-hmm. And there were sort of bars behind the boxes. <laughs> it's like a prison. Like a prison. <laughs> uh, but it, uh, was, um, it was fascinating. And, you know, and, um, the guy that always fascinated me, by the way, was Joe Brown because Joe never used to use a, 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 a tripod. All race, all race course callers in Australia use a, race, a tripod. Mm, that's right. And they rest the binoculars on the top of it and then they have a mic underneath it. And uh, the only guy who didn't do it was Joe Brown of, of ABC. And he used to ha- have the bins on his, on his hands, which to me, you know, because you, you, you get so, mm. I'd say the adrenaline is mm. rushing through mm. you so, so fast and you, you're shaking almost. When you, how he could hold them, I don't know. And he did that for years, and then he take he put the bins down at about the two hundred, and then he'd put on another pair of glasses, and then he'd pick up reading glasses. And I, I was absolutely, I was riveted by this. Uh, but uh, that was where I also used to watch you, Brian, and Bert Bryant, and and uh, Bill Collins. Uh, they're all. Uh, it was it was a real study, and Caulfield was the place to do it because yeah, you could actually you, see what was <coughs> happening in the yeah, box. You're absolutely right, and and I, and I went through that too, uh, Jim and. I remember the uh, the old hill stand at Flemington where the callers, the row of boxes along there. And uh, you'd look back and, and they'd be in their own booth and there, there was nothing nothing sort of luxurious about the broadcast boxes as we know. Uh, and they'd be jabbering away and, and one would be just as loud as the next one, but they'd all be so focused. They'd have a man alongside them or a, a tech or a helper, uh, a runner. Uh, and you're intrigued by it because, and I remember working with Bert Bryant back in the early 70s They'd stand out of the front of the box with where Bert was with their transistors and all this feedback would be coming back and Bert would be asking to <laughs> face the radio the, radio the other way because you get all these whistle sounds coming back. But it was all part of that, that magic of radio that we were you know, infatuated with, weren't we, uh, growing up? Mm. Well, I think that you know, the Bill Collins was certainly one of my uh, first uh, mm. memories and I'm, I'm sure Bert Bryan and Joe Brown and... Uh, Frank O'Brien as well at uh, at Flemington. I remember his uh, dulcet tones. It was a great era. Uh, growing up, that's what was talked of. You heard the, their voices, uh, and I just thought everyone grew up this way. <laughs> I actually got to school and realised, you know, you were, you'd gravitate towards a form guide, yeah, and you'd start to realise no one else was reading one, or, or in time they started to read them. And mm. I thought, well, we've been reading them for six years and uh, well, we've spoken joe and i'll just come to you now because we've spoken to jim about calling the, the 20 cups uh, for the bbc back to a, a worldwide audience and i just want to remind people about what your charter is and your title really is the keeper of the melbourne cup but we go back a little bit further you worked at the racing museum and the hall of fame when i was part of that board mm-hmm. as well uh, so you've been entrenched in, in sort of racing in this town for as long as I can remember. When did you actually start at the VRC? Well, I, I wrote to uh, Rodney Johnson uh, when I was studying at university and I, I actually thought at one point, I thought, hang on, there's enough people in this family that are involved in racing. Maybe I should do something else. You know, I loved it and uh, was taken in and uh, Jim can remember uh, Dad working on the rails at, at Flemington and other courses. I, uh, my later recollections was him in, in breeding, and I got very much involved in the horse breeding side of things and was really taken in from that perspective. But I wrote to Rodney Johnson, uh, who was the racing manager at the VRC at the time, said, look, I want to do some field work with my course. Can you help out? He said yes. And then uh, sometime later, he became CEO, uh, secretary of the VRC, and then uh, a, a job came up working with uh, Des O'Keefe and Julian Sullivan, uh, who both uh, have gone on to uh, be very successful in racing administration, and it was fantastic. I, I loved the you know, uh, you know, the idea of working for the VRC, but um, and that that was fantastic. But going to the racing museum was really important time, in, in my um, opinion, because it opened up the door in my mind about the history of of, of thoroughbred racing, and and that sort of then moved on to. Um, uh, onto the Melbourne Cup and, and I was able to go on as a spokesperson for the Melbourne Cup tour and 17 years later it's um, you know, it's one of the greatest stories in, in um, Australian sport and Australian culture as you know Brian I don't, and, I don't want to pump up his tyres too much but, but I do think without question it is the most successful promotional uh, tour of any 
sport of anywhere in the world. Because no it's, doubt. It's, no doubt. It's, it, it is, you, you have an iconic trophy. Everyone instantly recognises it. Uh, but also, they seem to be enthralled by it. You know, the well, whole, it's the, the stories whole. that spin off it, Jim. You, you know, know, it's, it's, well, uh, it, wherever you go. I, I remember this uh, when I was working for Godolphin the last uh, three or four years. Um, when Godolphin won the cup last year, we were in a private room in Flower Drum. We'd had a few and things were going well. People were making speeches. Everything was great. And then somebody decided, one of the one of the ladies there, decided that she'd take the cup into the main body of the restaurant. And, of course, we had a few poms there that weren't really sort of au fait with just how big the Melbourne Cup was. Well, they took the, these girls took the, the uh, cup into the main body of the restaurant and the squeals and the shouts, you know, unbelievable. I mean, Incredible. people were rushing mm. over mm. and that cup didn't come back into the room for two hours. People were taking, taking mm. pictures of it and getting their photos taken with it. Extraordinary. And videos. And, mm. and, I think, and I think that that's the been the great thing for the tour in recent years has been the advent of social media oh, I mean, yes. uh, yeah. and and taking it on the road i mean there's only well there's only one produced on this planet one melbourne cup and there's only you know we do have a replica yeah just it's not made of 18 karat gold gee i've told everyone it is <laughs> <laughs> well well the real thing is 18 karat gold but 99 percent of the time the real thing's out on the road yeah, exactly and yeah. um when people see it they want to you know, have a photo with it, and and that's been a real driver in a promotional sense mm. around the Melbourne Cup, Melbourne Cup Carnival. But Jim's right. I mean, you go to. I've been very fortunate to travel with the Cup, and go to a place like York and the Ebor Festival, and they all know it, and they all want to be part of it, which is um, and, and is a great thing. Is, part of it is the mystique of the race. Uh, they want to understand it. They don't quite. It's not as simple as the Derby or or the, or the Arc or something like that, which you know is a championship race for. Yeah three-year-olds or for older horses or whatever it's difficult to sort of get your head around you've got to understand it uh and also you have this uh this iconic trophy which goes mm -hmm. everywhere and and i think that it's all part of the magic for me and, and i've looked at administration across the victoria racing club in particular and, and thought you know the current administration is very fortunate that you know there's been a lot of people do things along the way in in time in history uh to build up the yeah. Melbourne Cup Carnival yeah. and also the Melbourne Cup. And Rodney Johnson's a key one around that year of 1993 in with David Burke and others, Jim included, uh, getting uh, Dermot Weld and uh, and others to to get vintage crop over here. Les um, Benton. Les Benton, yeah. uh, absolutely. All those people that, you know, that was a, a key moment in time as was you know Chester Manifold um, with the the TAB in 61 and you look back over time there's certain things that have happened certainly at Flemington and in the administration of the club that has just elevated it one step one notch further up the the rung and it's become um, you know a, a carnival of international significance. Interesting comment you made about Godolphin there, uh, Jim. Last week on the program, uh, my guests were Sheila Laxon and Wendy Green. And Wendy Green told the story, of course, that great story of Rogan Josh in 99. And she said it was interesting because Frankie Dettori had been promised the stake, the prize money, because all Godolphin wanted was the cup, was the trophy. That's 20 years ago. And it, it took them a while, but they got it last year. But the money, you know, was was probably important, but that was for Frankie. But they just wanted that cup for the for the cabinet. Well, there is a magic photo of uh, Sheikh Mohammed with the cup in the desert, which is yet to be produced uh, publicly. But yeah. I know there is a photo, and I know from what I'm told that he was so proud to uh, get the trophy. There's no trophy that I know of any, of any significance for the Derby, right, in, in England. I mean, the, the English Derby is the most important horse race in the world, the most influential. It's not the biggest. It's not. Well, the, what do they get? They get a trophy, but it, it, it's sort of changed over the years. Mm. It's it's not it's it's different some years, and it depends on the sponsor. It depends how much they want to put into the the, the sort of trophy itself, how much uh, money they want to spend, really. Um, but. It's it's um, you don't walk into a room and say, God, he's won the he's won the English Derby. 
you know. You don't. You wouldn't know. You, you wouldn't know what it was. You, you know, it might have been the under 16s You know, down in yeah. North Melbourne. But why is it the tour idea hasn't been replicated anywhere else in the world? Well, I think other sports have tried to replicate it. Certainly, uh, I've seen the uh, the Golden Slippers been out on the road. Certainly for mm. a commemorative year, a fifty year anniversary, back in two thousand and seven, it probably was. Uh, the AFL have tried to do the same thing. Uh, it's hard stat- with the codes, though, isn't it, with rugby? Yeah, and, and certainly. And, and we're so fortunate that um, the stories connected with the race or Melbourne Cup, horse racing, you've got a horse, you've got a trainer, you've got a jockey, you've got an owner, you've got a strapper, you've got a breeder. You've got about five or six stories in there in one mm. given year. And from a Melbourne Cup perspective, we've also got 158 years of history. So... You multiply that out. It, there's there's quite a lot of stories, let alone destinations and different towns and 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 so forth. And uh, uh, I think it's hard to replicate because um, you know the inherent uh, structure of it is that you know we we have history there, and it's very hard to just create history. Uh, you know, from a standing start. So uh, it, it works really well. I was driving along yesterday and a phone call came through. It comes up on your phone. I thought, oh, who's this? It was Mark Demester. Now, Mark Demester, of course, is related. Is he the grandson or the great-grandson? He's actually the grandson because Edian married late. Edian, the trainer of archery, he trained archery at about 28, 29. He married when he was about 50. He had about 11, 10 or 11 kids. Pretty sure Mark was the youngest of of his yeah, youngest. That's so right. it sort of, yeah. it sounds odd, but about a 140-year gap or a 100-year gap. But uh, Yeah, because he kept he is, saying yeah. to me, uh, he was my, my grandfather, and I kept doing the sums and thought, he can't be, he can't be. Yeah, like, this yeah. is 1861, 1862, and there's that link, uh, and the last link back to, to the horse that started it all. Uh, yeah, and all those, yeah, he's a, he's a great, Example of uh, someone who has really embraced the whole historical nature of uh, of the Demester name and and his father and what his contribution was to racing, let alone the Melbourne Cup, and uh, uh, he's carried that on a hundred and something, hundred and forty, fifty years later. And Joe, we uh, recently spoke on the program about the trophy and the um, the hundred year, like the centenary of the three handled handled cup. And it was Artilleryman a hundred years ago in nineteen nineteen, correct? Well, it was, and uh, through Amanda Elliott, the chairman of the VRC, we're very fortunate to have tracked down through the Meyer family the actual trophy that Artilleryman oh, won. Right, and um, it's going to be very front, much front and centre across Melbourne Cup Carnival. It already has been across the Lexus Melbourne Cup Tour. Has been a great addition, certainly to the promotion this year. But a lot of people probably not aware that there was a lot of pressure on the committee back in, you know, after World War One because it was made over in the UK and then they decided it was too hard logistically to get it transported out. So they got it made by Drummonds, commissioned Drummonds to come up with a design. They commissioned James Steeth who came up with a three-handle loving cup. There was a lot of pressure to come up with a design of trophy that was reflective of Australia's great horse race. They said previously it was too this, it was too that, it was too big, it was too small, it was, you know, it copped a lot of flack. So some people might say that VRC fluked it um, in getting the design that it did because it is, you know, it's trademarked, it's it's instantly recognisable, as Jim said. But um, uh, I wouldn't underestimate the that the thought that went into it and um, and the pressure that was on those involved to get it right. Joe, what was this story of artillery, man? Because every time I go down to uh, Sale or down that way, I, I go past uh, uh, that uh, Petrobus at Rosedale and you can tell me the story about Petrobus, but what about, what, what about uh, artillery, man? What was the significant story there? Well, I actually recounted one recently and uh, two things with him. He was... Uh, by Comedy King, who won the Melbourne Cup in uh, 1910. That's right. And he was an import? Uh, well, Comedy King was. He was raced by Sol Green. Uh, he was uh, imported as a foal at foot uh, by Sol Green, who was a prominent bookmaker and owner breeder. Uh, the thing with Artillery Man was uh, he was owned by Sir Samuel Horton and uh, Alex Murphy. He had a great rivalry with another horse called Richmond Maine. That's right. And... Uh, they both dead-heated in the AJC Derby, uh, which was run in the spring back then. They came down to Melbourne, both raced in the Caulfield Guineas. Artillery Man won that. Uh, Richmond Main ran third. They met again 
in the VRC Derby. Richmond, Maine defeated Artilleryman. Uh, they ran 1-2. And then three days later, they fronted up again in the <laughs> Melbourne Cup <laughs> and they reversed the placings. And, uh, three Artillery, rods. Yeah. Three rods and they carried Amazing. seven stone six and uh, uh, Artilleryman won by six lengths. What stands out to me and also to that, I mean, uh, you know, Artilleryman was by Comedy King, but Richmond, Maine was by Prince Foot, who won the 1909 Melbourne Cup. So he had these two horses that were like... Sons of Cup winners. Sons of Cup yeah. winners that were running against each other in feature races and reversing Amazing. the placings. That's sort of what stands out to me. Uh, he was a, apparently was a beautiful looking horse. He, he died prematurely. Um, sadly, one of the part owners, Alex uh, Murphy, died on the same day as, as the horse did, which was quite extraordinary. Sure. But... Um, uh, but Sir Samuel Horden was a, uh, a prolific owner and breeder, and he also owned uh, uh, Violoncello, which uh, was the first winner of the Cox Plate. 19, and he might have won a Caulfield Cup. 1922, well. yeah. So uh, they were prominent racing people, very wealthy man and, uh, in retail, and a member of his uh, daughter married into you know, the, the Meyer and uh, Horden families connected, mm. uh, and uh, through that... Uh, uh, the, the trophy itself is now part of the, the Maya collection and um, we're very fortunate to have access to it this year. Yeah, fantastic. Jim, growing up through the 60s with your dad being a bookie, uh, it's interesting to sort of reflect back on how big you know, the Cup Carnival was, but something that was really prominent at the time was the call of the card. And I'm sure you would have, I don't know whether you're old enough to go along to the call of the card at the Victoria Club, but it was such a, an, an integral part of the 24 hours before, 48 hours before it the was, Cup, it wasn't was, it? It was really big, uh, and it was it was always done, say, on the Friday before or the uh, the, the Monday before the, the Cup. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember the one or two that I went to, uh, Bill Collins uh, was the man who was the, the MC of it. That's and, right. And the MC was absolutely crucial to the success of it because he had to field all the all the different bets. And Bill, of course, being the son of a bookie and also had a try at it himself. And he was at Clark for his father. He was very, very good at the, at the, at the betting stuff. And um, he could call the bets. It was a room, if, if you can imagine, it's like quite a big sort of, uh, big dining room, if you like, mm. uh, with a bar in the corner and uh, about 300 people there uh, all around. And you'd have spotters as well and uh, then they'd offer offer uh, offer up each of the horses and each of these bookmakers who were s- sort of betting at the call of the card there were about 20 the day I was there uh, they would each in turn be offered uh, that horse to bet on that first right so it was fair to everyone it was supposed to be fair to everybody they get the first crack and then say my dad would say offer 20 to 1 about you know whatever midlander the whole room would then uh, who wants 20 to 1 and then you might have you know 20 people want to get on at 20s and then and then you say now Brian is there any more and you say no I'll go 16s right and 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 then when he was finished with it it would go on to the next guy what would he want to offer right so it was and he might offer 25s so it, it's it was it was a is a very interesting procedure the atmosphere was electric, yeah. and it was just something that was so special. Yeah. And I think, and I think, just yeah. on that too, Brian. That I mean, the the call of the card goes back to the eighteen eighties. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. it's got a long yeah. history connected. Yeah. I mean, the Melbourne Cup goes back to eighteen sixty one, but the call of the card was around way back, um, and it was a feature uh, way back in the that that period of time. And I would imagine the volume of bets were. Uh, I mean that was a legitimate way of you know, of getting on, and and uh, and they would land big bets, and uh, that's how they operated. And the uh, the prices that were sort of set by the end of the betting were the prices they'd open at the next day. Pretty well, yeah. yeah, and they and they were real prices. They weren't manufactured because mm. they'd actually stood the test of the market already. You know, there were three hundred guys, many of them prepared to bet in hundreds of thousands. To, to actually see that that market was was pretty well real. It, was, it yeah. was not a fabricated sort of market done by some bloke in a marketing department. Yeah. It, was, it was a real market. You'd have the big bookies, the Waterhouses coming down from Sydney in the in the mid sixties, and 
you had some of the fearless punters around then too, and 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 guys betting on the you know uh, John H Griffiths and Atteridge and Albert Smith. Albert Smith. Like I mean, if people had the time to go back and look at the history, and there is a book that the Bookmakers Association put out a couple of years ago. And the tales that were told, and and the the amount of money back in the pound days is just extraordinary. Yeah, and, I, well, and I think the the number, the volume of bookmakers too. I do uh, live outside of the eighteen eighties, but going um, back in <laughs> that that sort of period of time, they the number of bookmakers was in its hundreds, like several hundred. Um, well, Joe, I have possibly. a I have a race book at home, uh, which was given to me by a. A pommy friend of mine who found it in his mother's drawer. Uh, she'd unfortunately passed away. It was the uh, it was the 1956 Derby Day race book from Flemington. So we had the triple dead heat, uh, the the Hotham, the last race, yeah. and that was actually marked in this race book. Was it Travel the, Boy who won the the Derby? No, uh, could have been Travel Boy. Yeah, Tommy uh, Smith. Uh, but certainly the um, the triple dead heat was. Uh, was Ark Royal, Pandy Sun, and Fighting Force. Exactly, yep. Uh, and they were, um, you know, that's sort of one of the one of the questions that often comes up. <laughs> the uh, trivia nights. Used, used, used to come up. <laughs> and uh, the jockeys? Uh, jockeys, Jack Pertel, Bill Williamson, Reg Heather. Correct way. Very good. The race book itself had the list of all bookmakers uh, registered and betting on the course that day. And there were 1,200. Hmm. There was a... 1,200? Yeah, there was a flat... There was the hill. There was the elms. There was another ring somewhere. There was the general ring. The little uh, flat. The 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 little flat. Yeah. The the um, the bird cage. Elms. Um, and the elms everywhere. Yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. the and and the rails. That's extraordinary. And and the, they were the days where you know that you'd have guys, runners and bowlers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was just, and the racetrack was just something different, wasn't it? It was just. We I think we were very lucky. In our vintage now, to particularly at Jim and I, not so much you, Joe, but you, you were the tail end of it, to actually be in that environment, like growing up, uh, being at the races, just watching what was going on, the sound, the smell of the racetrack. That's the thing that sort of, you know, it was intoxicating. And if I could just say, though, I, I can remember growing up in, in the late 60s and uh, the excitement certainly around that I can remember with my father and mother with... Uh, Cup time in particular, you knew it was pretty special from yeah. a very young and early age. Uh, Belition was running in the '67 Cup, but I, uh, which the family racehorse, but I can remember there was it was game on, and you knew that there was something a little bit different around it, from a very young age. It was quite a strange thing, and I, I was, and I thought, gee, this is a great feeling, mm-hmm. and every year you'd wait for that 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 time again, and uh, it was it was quite extraordinary. So well, how, well, how would your dad do the form? Uh, he, he was painstaking with the form. Cards? Uh, did he have cards? He, had, he did his own cards. Yeah. And he, he um, what he used to do is he used to have the results supplied <coughs> by a, a, a publisher down in uh, just off Lonsdale Street. Uh, called, it was called The Judge. The Sporting Judge was the name of the paper. And it used to supply the, the, the actual numbers of each of the races. So you would get the, the name of the horse, say Farlap or Tullock, and you would have bes- uh, beside it the numbers of the races, the last six starts yeah, that that yeah, horse ran in. Yeah. And he then would keep the records corresponding to the numbers. A bit like the racing those. calendar. A bit like the racing calendar, yeah, a bit yeah, like, a bit like the, uh, the photo form that we used mm. to, used to we all used to collect. Get. It was a very big deal. And, uh, yeah, he was painstaking. His preparation, his advantage over everybody else was that, and this is, of course, long before computers, videos or anything, he kept his own records. A lot of people used to turn up and have not done the form and not seen the form or not had access to it. Well, he, he had actually gone to a lot of trouble to actually keep it. Kept his own photo form and did all sorts of things uh, like that. I, I often think it's a great pity that he didn't live in today's age because it would have been so much easier for him. But, of course, he would have lost his edge in the, in the market because he'd, he'd stand up and he'd already have his prices pretty well set based on what he knew and ba- based on, on his form assessment and he was a very good judge we had a company uh gary gray and i created a company back in the mid to late 70s called race play and we got the contract to uh, to be able to tape the races on the metropolitan tracks um and we'd sell it we'd give the racing club to take a commission for it and then we'd sell it to the professional punters and the owners and when i look back now sort of nearly 40 years on we're probably responsible for that edge 
going away from the bookies because all of a sudden the punters could access videos, race mm-hmm. replays. This is well before computers, but the edge, the gap started to diminish, you know, so they, the bookies weren't driving the big flash cars after a while and the punters were getting, uh, were sort of getting very competitive then. And it was a change. I can remember one of the only bits of information that you'd get in a paper um, about a horse working was the, the times, the track work times mm. on a Thursday. The Herald, the Herald in the afternoon would would record the times of who <laughs> ran eight hundred meters at court. And like now, you probably get it from every track yeah. around Australia and on Twitter or something, or yeah. like instantaneously. And no prices in the paper would just be the favoured runners, and mm. it'd be yeah. the favourite would be on top. Market, and the, the market order, market order, but no numbers, no, no numbers, numbers. No, no. and the comment would be. Uh, Hard to beat. Uh, <laughs> should be in this right. a long way. So you'd say, well, hang on, there's a field of 15 and the guy's virtually given a chance to 14 of them. <laughs> and the next day on the paper, they'd say, we actually fancied that. Did you get, did yeah. you get on? <laughs> claim so, it. Yeah, right. claim, claim a winner. You, you mentioned before uh, Bolition running seventh in the 67 Melbourne Cup. What was it like being in the family there? Your dad's a bookie. He would have been working that day on the rails at Flemington. And he had a runner in the Melbourne Cup. So did all the little kids come to the races? It, it was, uh, well, we didn't We didn't all go to the races because school actually, that that particular year, they didn't give a, a public holiday to the to kids at school. I remember just how special it was because everybody from the bush came down. When I say the bush, uh, Dad was from Charlton. He was born in Charlton. Uh, his family, most of his family lived around Charlton, Lake Marmel and Bort up in the Wimmera Mallee. Uh, they all came to Melbourne for the for the day and uh, and stayed over and it was the most unbelievable sort of uh, party. Even though she'd run seventh, uh, <laughs> everybody was there and and it was it was just unbelievable. You know they they, they they just came from everywhere. But it was funny that Bolition was was trained originally by Arthur Didham in uh, in New Zealand uh. and he came to Melbourne with Bolition and she won a race at Caulfield one day. I remember Dad coming home and he said, do you know, he said to Mum, he said, do you know, I saw a mare today that oh, I, I really think I, I'd love to buy her. I think she'd be absolutely, because he was trying to, he wanted to buy a brood mare and breed his own. He said, I, I think she'd be just the mare for, for what we want to do. And uh, he said, but she wouldn't be for sale. So it was a ritual. You know, you were talking about rituals and what we all used to do. After the races, we used to have tea and then we go around to the paper shop and wait for the Sporting Globe to come in. <laughs> and uh, so we sit outside the, the, in the car and then, and then when... The, Easily uh, amused. And, and when the, when the, when the, when the pinky pink arrived... Oh, did you, in, didn't you I'd, hang out for I'd, it? I'd, I'd run it? in and get it. And I opened up page three and there's, a, there's a, an article there by Tom Moon, Premonition Bolition. So I read it down, and it says, Arthur Didham has bought this horse to Melbourne. However, he wants to sell her. He said, uh, I want to sell her for 10,000 pounds. This is in, um, well, it, been, uh, it might have been $10,000. Yeah, 67, uh, it would have been. Yeah. But I think we bought it, uh, she, they bought it in 66. So it might have been just after they went decimal. decimal yeah. I reckon yeah. the, the average house was about 9,000 in, in Melbourne. No, and right? I think the average wage was about three to four a year, like a yearly money. wage. So it's it was a, a fair, it was a so bit of money to ask for. So anyway, he asked for ten thousand, and um, in the paper. So Dad got on the phone to a man he knew, Brian Maguire, who was a bloodstock agent, and he said, "Brian, uh, ring up uh, Mr. Didham and, and offer him ten thousand. And he said, "Look, Brian, that's not how you do it. You, you ring up and offer him four. Right, and then he'll come back, and then you offer him six, and then you might settle for about seven. He said, "No, just ring him, and just say ten. And he said, "Well, he said, I know what the answer's going to be. He's going to come back and say, "I've just had an offer, and it's now twelve. <laughs> anyway, so he rings Arthur, uh, Brian McGraw, representing Brian McGraw. I'd like to offer you ten thousand uh, dollars for." He said, "Good, done." <laughs> so the sale was it. So anyway, they eventually met, and they were both the same sort of people they were were just straight shooters you know and and uh they they got on famously and arthur used to come to our place every year 
Yeah. It was like uh, like the, a visit from the Pope oh. or, or, or royalty. Uh, <laughs> it's the first time, the only time I ever saw Dad put a shirt, put a put a put a, a suit, tie, it's a, not a suit and tie. Know, on for, dinner. for dinner, I said that right. later. I, was, I, mean, I said that to Midge and, and John did him. I said, oh, I don't know how good your grandfather was, but <laughs> Dad used to suit up when he came over. It was hilarious, you know. And and, and Arthur used to, and Arthur used to hardly say much at all, and we were all all in awe of him, you know. And, and he. Because he, he brought over so many good. Anyway, one year he came over and he said, "I think I've got a very good horse for this year. His name's Igloo." Oh. Right, so we were all onto Igloo. What well, a star! Well, well Igloo what a great in 1970 horse. ran yeah. second in the in the in the Caulfield Cup, the Cox Plate, and the Melbourne Cup. Big gangly looking horse. Yeah, what yeah. a great star! Yeah. We're going to look. I'm loving this. Um, we're going to come back and talk about your career in a moment, uh, Jim. We're going for a break. This is the history of the Melbourne Cup, and I'm talking to the uh, McGrath brothers. Back in a moment. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Now, Jim. You left Melbourne as a young man. You couldn't get a go here uh, because the old buggers called for yeah, this. People, like people like you, Brian. You know, no, I was, I, was, I was only just starting in 72, so I wasn't really chopping you out. But uh, Bill and, and Bert and Joe, they iconic race callers. And I suppose with so many of them, I suppose I'd include myself too. Longevity's the key. You can keep reasonable health. Yeah. And stay at the helm and love what you're doing. That's, that's what it's all about. I mean, the frustration at the same yes, time. But, yeah. but here we were with three leaders in this field. And it's a very limited field. There's very few jobs of note. I think Joe started, Joe Brown started in about 1948, 49. Uh, Bill uh, started in about 52. Bert uh, was 50. Bert, Bert 52, or 50, yeah. 51, 52. Yeah. And, and, and Bill just after him in 50, 52 or 3. Did, did Bill do Comic Court? No. No. He did, I thought it would Della might have been his first. Yeah, and I, I think I, Bert I started with Delta and then Delray. Yeah. So, so we had three guys at the top of their profession, mm. all of them excellent broadcasters, all with completely different styles, with completely different audiences, uh, who had been there for a total of a hundred years yeah. between <laughs> between them, you know, yeah. and and they weren't going to move, Pete. They weren't <laughs> going to move. So I, I got an offer to go to Hong Kong, and. Uh, I went up there, and uh, I was very fortunate. I got I got a, a lot of breaks up there. You mastered it up there very quickly. Uh, didn't surprise anyone, really. And, and how many years there? Was it about the mid eighties? Th- I was there thirteen years. Yeah, I went there. Nineteen seventy three was the third year of professional racing. Uh, it was, um, you know, in in its infancy, but there were some great professionals there. George Moore was the the, the champion trainer. Uh, Jeff Lane was was there. Some big names uh, used to come over from from England as well in in the in the in the winter. It was it was great a great time. I remember coming up there in about nineteen eighty or eighty one uh, with a racing tour, and we we caught up with you. And you were doing a TV show, a racing TV show, and you interviewed me about the race play videos. The King and the Man, I think, was the, the one we'd started, and I, I found that tape recently and <laughs> played it. And you, were both, you and I were sitting there in these great big sort of wicker chairs. Yeah, with the big high backs in big safari suits with big collars and hair nearly down to our shoulders. Very fashionable. It was. It was, well, it was at the time. Of course it was. I could yeah. imagine. And they were exciting times going to Happy Valley and Sha Tin hadn't opened, or may have just opened, but the Happy Valley Wednesday nights were just oh, the, the most exciting day or night at the races. And then across to the UK. So how did that come about, 86? It was a, an interesting thing. Uh, I, I ran into a man called Graham Rock, who uh, I didn't really know. He was a journalist from uh, the UK. He came out to Hong Kong. Uh, he was a, he was originally uh, a handicapper, and then no, sorry, he was originally a stipe, and he, then he became the handicapper. And we got on famously. I'd never met him before. We got on famously. Our wives got on famously, and uh, I got very, very friendly with him. And then I was back in, um, I was back in the UK uh, for. I used to go there for the, the summers, and I was there. And I picked up the Sporting Life. I said, "There's going to be a new racing paper starting. They've just appointed their first editor. The first editor is Graham Rock." I said, "I can't believe this." Gee. So I got straight on the phone to him. Uh, and uh, no mobiles in those days. Uh, tracked him down, 
And uh, I said, Graham, we've got to have a drink. You know, I knew he was in London. I said, to have a drink. He said, yeah, yeah, okay. So I, said, I begged him for the job. Bottom line was he said, look, I can't pay you anywhere near what you're getting in Hong Kong. I said, I don't care. I want to, I want a complete change. I want to get away. I want to do something different. He said, right, well, you can do it. You can start at the top, start at the bottom, do results and stuff like that, which is what I did in 1986. And... Uh, but I got I got in and I I you know worked hard and I uh, got a few openings and and took off from there. Is this when you uh, you wrote under the name of Hotspur? No, I wrote it under the name of Hotspur in 1991 when I joined the Daily Telegraph. So so when did the race calling uh, start? When when did you get to the BBC? When did that happen? Well, when I got there, it took me about 18 months to actually get a commentary um, of, on a regular basis in the UK. Prior to that, I'd been commentating in Ireland at the Phoenix Park which um, they'd revamped, and, and I, I, was, I was fortunate to get an opening there. I was going to the UK over to Phoenix Park to call their meetings at weekends and then coming back. So I didn't call in the UK for about 15 months, uh, and then eventually I got to go. And uh, Peter O'Sullivan was very, very good to me. He appointed me in public, um, which was very embarrassing because I... I went along to the interview of the BBC and uh, the guy there, the head of sport, Jonathan Martin, he said, this is the first time this has ever happened, unprecedented. Uh, he said, um, your to-be uh, predecessor has nominated you in public as his successor. He said, I find it very, very hard to conduct this interview. <laughs> and so, so I got the job. Yeah, and he got it right. Uh, a wonderful career and... Just looking back at the races you called, like you're associated with the famous Grand National, uh, you called the Arc for the BBC, you called the Derby, and as, as an Australian race caller in my time, there are races when you, you look from, from afar, you think, God, wouldn't that be fantastic to do one of those? Well, it is, and it's daunting, and, and, and it's, but I think that here the, um, the principles, uh, the basics uh, attached to the race calling in this country stand uh, anywhere, and and that's what they should be, and that is that you try to call every every runner, and what had happened, due to a lot of different circumstances, one of them is the size of the courses. The courses are just enormous, uh, and you do need very good binoculars, and you need uh, a lot of different things going for you. Guys just used to call. They got into the habit of calling the first six. There'd be a field of twenty eight, and they'd call the first six or seven. And and you know, if they got the finish right, that'd be that'd be just about good enough. Well, to do that back here, you'd be lynched. Well, but also different circumstances, as I say. I mean, I'm not I'm not condoning it, but I'm just saying that what changed the biggest change was in the eighties to have uh, closed circuit television, because courses like Newmarket. You cannot call without a television yeah. monitor. Yeah. You cannot call them off your bins. You know they're they're two and a quarter miles, two and a half miles away. Uh, you just can't see them no. for, for half the half the the race. You can't see them. You know, so it, it's a uh, a lot of things came into it. But also, I think they dropped their hands a bit, and I think uh, it was nice to come in with a with a different style. Yeah, and that style was the Australian style, the rapid fire, uh, going through the field, calling them first, second, third, fourth, getting. Photos right, calling the field through to the to the tailenders, and you you got the nickname of Croc, is that right? Yeah, some very very a man with a great imagination, uh, <laughs> because it was uh, the time uh, Paul Hogan uh, uh, came to town with uh, Crocodile Dundee. Someone said, "Oh, Jesus, right?" And so, oh, yeah, let's call him Crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific, uh, Jim. With the the great race, uh, which is steeped in history, um, and we're talking about the Melbourne Cup, of course, and we'll come back to your calls. Calling the Grand National, are there four or five callers in that famous race? Uh, we used three. Three. Uh, yeah. Yeah, who, who were you? Which Where were you? I was I was in the Grandstand. Uh, but before that, when Peter was in the Grandstand, I used to do the best part of the course, which is uh, Beaches Brook. So you, you call the fourth, the fifth, Beaches, which is the sixth. You call uh, the Foynhaven, which is number seven. Uh, then you call the Canal Turn, number eight. Then you go uh, Valentine's, and then one after. You, they're going around you. You're in the uh, unique part of the course. It's where all the action is. It's the best part. So I did that for five years, and then when Peter retired, I took over in the grandstand. To be honest, the grandstand is probably the easiest bit of the, of the course because they've sorted themselves. You, you call the start, uh, and then, of course, this field of 40 
Rushdoor was the first, and there's a, a stack of fallers. You can't see anything. You're going to say over to John Hanmer, and, uh, and poor old John has to try and pick them up off the floor, right? Um, uh, so, and then by the time they get back to you, you know, you've, you've got half the field eliminated. So, uh, you know, you're in a better position. Now, what about in the 90s? Was it 93 where there was the no race, and then the bomb scare where the place was evacuated? Yeah, 93, there was a no race. Uh, Tapes wrapped around the jockeys. Yeah, and they had, they had a something. couple of false starts and yeah. uh, they took off and <laughs> they wouldn't stop. Under the rules, if they complete a circuit of the track, uh, the race is then void. There's nothing you can do. You have to stop them before they've gone the a complete lap. Yeah. Uh, and they, they wouldn't stop. Back to the Melbourne Cup, the first one that you did for the BBC was June 1994. Yeah. I was living here, so I was... Li- calling races and knew the colours bar the exception of the, imp- the imported horses that had come in for the cup. So I had a fair handle on the colours, but you'd only see them once. Yeah, the I'd locals. only see them once, but to be honest with you, Brian, uh, I'm sure you're the same as me. You always look at the colours in the paper. The paper uh, it's is a big a, help is now. It's a, a huge help yeah, now. Yeah. You can see the colours there. And uh, you being a, a race caller, you would always automatically have a fair idea. If today... Yeah. You know, you're looking at whether it's the Caulfield Cup or the Geelong Cup or whatever. You'd be looking at them and you'd have a fair idea of, of most mm. of them. You know, yeah. maybe maybe two thirds of the field. Yeah, true. Well, true. Well, uh, you know, I'd always have a fair idea before I came down, and then you know, you start studying, you start really putting a bit of work in. And you were watching these horses that had come here. You would have seen Dunedin, and you would have seen Protectionist, although it was raced in Germany, I think it was, and horses that were coming for the Cup. So you were actually seeing them live before we would. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I personally think it's an advantage. And in, these days with videos, everybody knows yeah. everything that's going on. Yeah. You can see races anywhere in the world mm. within minutes. And I think that's the way the the whole game has evolved. I mean, you have to know what's emerging in New Zealand, mm. what's the prominent horse in wherever it is in what part of the world, the UK, Ireland, and be across it. It's It's... You know, in administration, you you can't sit back and say, "Oh, well, they're in that side of the world, we're over here," because horses are moving so quickly. Yeah, the world the world shrinks, doesn't it? It really does. It does. Uh, Jim, what what has been the the cup that you've enjoyed the most? Uh, looking at them, I'd say uh, I got a big kick out of Maccabi Diva, obviously, uh, yeah. the, particularly the the third one. Uh, I thought that was uh, that was fantastic. Fiorente was pretty good, uh, the final one. Um, I think the, the one ethereal one, uh, I'm only talking through my pocket here. <laughs> I, uh, I I got the trifecta, believe it or not. I put Persian Punch in to run third. It, it paid enormous. It paid unbelievably well. It paid about, I think it paid about 6000 and, uh, They're the ones you remember, don't you? Yeah, it's funny though. <laughs> <laughs> Were you still getting the buzz out of it, like doing the race as as the years rolled by? You know, because you, you'd be coming from doing... Cause I remember there are times you'd fly in and you'd come from the Breeders' Cup because I'd track as to where you were and what time you're arriving through through Brother Joe. And i said, when's Jim coming? Oh, he gets in on early Monday morning flying 26 hours from Kentucky or somewhere. How did, I did you do some that? Stupid, I did some stupid things. I, 11 times I did that double. Gee. I did um, the Breeders and then Melbourne. The best uh, best ones were about about four of those were the other way around, which was perfect. Come to Melbourne first and then go to the Breeders. Yeah. That was much better. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, about about seven times I'd probably did it the other way around, which was which was ridiculous. The, the hairiest moment we ever had, uh, Brian, was uh, we, we turned up and my brother Naish has always been my deputy on Cup Day. He's a good man. He, he's yep. a good man, and because we he, used to he, provide the swivel stand for you, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, the swivel yeah. stand, and uh, uh, you know we we used to we used to uh, young Johnny used to supply the the the, the, uh, the bins. Little and, Johnny Burke. Yeah, yeah. Jim, Johnny yeah. Burke. Yeah. Yeah. He, he used to supply that, and uh, also uh, Matt Jones. Used to supply a big pair of bins. That's right. uh, bins know, being binoculars, yeah, yeah. So not was, rubbish uh, bins. <laughs> no, they were they were they were fantastic, and uh, so it all came together. Mm. The hairiest day we got there, and um, uh, no commentary box. They hadn't. They hadn't. Somebody had come in new uh, at the course and um, had messed up the bookings, and um, <laughs> we didn't have a we didn't have a box. And uh, how, how how long did you have? Was it on the day? Or? This was on the day. 
Yeah, so sure. uh, we got there at about, uh, well, I always used to get there about 8.30, and they said, there's no box. So oh, I went down the, went down the thing. I said, there's got to be some mistake here. There's no, there's no commentary box. Uh, Who was in your box? Someone from Japan or New Zealand? Yeah, it was uh, it was an overseas uh, crew. It might have been Japanese, um, but anyway, uh, we went down and uh, they said, "No, sorry, there's no, there's no box for you." So well, we booked it. You know, no, uh, no, nah, nah, no idea. Uh, they said, "Look, you're going to have to take um, you're going to have to take the ABC." I said, "No, we're not. Never come halfway come across the world exactly. to come and take the ABC, right?" Uh, so anyway, uh, remember the guy from Toowoomba. They call her from Toowoomba. Pat O'Shea. Pat O'Shea. Yeah. He was. He had a box up the up the end. It was a bigger box than the others. And they said uh, to Pat, who very kindly said, uh, "Yeah, he wouldn't mind if I went down the other end of the box." Well, the acoustics were terrible, uh, as you can imagine. Uh, but we got away with it. Pat was up at one end. We had a filing cabinet in the middle to sort of uh, muffle a bit of the sound. And, and, and I was over in the other corner. And you and, got and, through and it? And got through it. But, uh, you know, talk about hairy. You know, it was ridiculous. Uh, wonderful tales. Um, as we said at the start of the program, that the race itself, uh, and I've... It's it's my it's it's a labour of love to do this program because uh, and it's only ten editions. This is our first year, but as long as we all stay healthy, Joe, we're going to keep come coming back and doing it because there are so many stories, there are so many tales, and you're just one of the little pieces of the jigsaw there, uh, Jim. Well, I think uh, you're right in terms of the the race and the, the history of the race, uh, Brian, and the different personalities involved. There's just so many, and you know, I found with the the Cup Tour. Lexus Melbourne Cup tour on the road is um, you go out there and you meet just that many people that have had a connection or along the way and I mean we had a great um, uh, discovery this year on tour and I, I work with a girl who um, who's very efficient and I, I gave her a task I said we're gonna we're gonna find all the burial sites of Melbourne Cup winners long and short we found uh, we were googling um, Martini Henry and uh, found that he uh, ended up standing in Longreach, and um, he 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 died in Longreach. And no one knew about it in Longreach. Basically, we found the burial site of yeah. Martini Henry, who was by musket, the same really? sire as Carbine, yeah. and won the Derby at his first start in the Melbourne Cup at his second three days later, back in eighteen eighty three. And um, yeah, it was. There's a longer version of this story, but he, he we found him. The the council. Uh, put a plaque and a rock where he was uh, buried, and then they're going to call uh, on uh, Melbourne Cup Day this year. Uh, the long on Longreach at Longreach, they're going to have the Martini Henry uh, Cup. So um, it's amazing things that you come yeah, across, and yeah. I, you know, I've been very fortunate to be involved in it, and um, just you know, love the different stories that come out of it. No doubt at all. Great to see you back in Australia, uh, Jim. How long's the stay here? Uh, for the spring, Brian, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, something I really look forward to and yep. uh, my stays are becoming a bit longer these days, which I'm really enjoying and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's good to be back. Special guests, uh, great to be in their company. The McGrath brothers, Joe and Jim, finally got them together in the studio to share some stories about the great race, the Melbourne Cup. Thanks for your company, look forward to your company again next week.